Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, our special guest is Kate Forbes, Cabinet Secretary for Finance in Nicola Sturgeon's government. She is Scotland's Chancellor. We're going to be talking about Scottish independence, is it coming and what would it mean, and a bit on a turbulent week in Scottish politics, with Nicola Sturgeon being cleared of breaking the ministerial code and a split in nationalism with Alex Salmond launching his new Alba party. Plus, the Defence Review. Boris Johnson promised not to cut British troops at the general election. Now he's reducing the army by 10,000 service personnel. Are we in for a less effective army, but more symbolic aircraft carriers in the South China Sea? And as Alan Turing appears on the £50 note, what is the symbolism of our currency really all about? And who will go on the money and the stamps when the Queen dies? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We hope you enjoyed last week's inaugural live Zoom event. If you missed it, video and audio will be up soon on our Patreon page. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and get lots of splendid benefits too. And if you don't follow us on Twitter, make sure you do because we're celebrating a year of Bunker Dailies with the Bunker World Cup. Vote for your favourite podcast every day on Twitter where we are at Bunker underscore pod. Now let's meet today's panel. Transplanted San Franciscan Yasmin Sahan is the Atlantic's woman in North London. Hello Yasmin, how are you? Hey there, I'm good, thank you. All good here. So, um, Yasmin, vaccine nationalism has been pretty front of mind lately. Britain's been raging against the prospect of the EU not exporting vaccines to us, even though the EU has exported 41.6 million vaccines elsewhere, mostly to the UK, and the UK has exported none. So the Atlantic has been reporting that while the Biden administration promised to send Canada and Mexico a total of 4 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, democracies keep vaccines to themselves in general. What is happening here? Is there a, a healthy international trade or or traffic rather in vaccines? There's quite a lot of vaccine nationalism. And I think that's the situation we're seeing right here. So, So basically, in short, the lion's share of the world's available vaccine supply is being held by a very small chunk of the global population, i.e. the wealthy countries, the United States, Britain, etc. Now, this isn't totally surprising because wealthy countries have had the means to invest in a lot of vaccine trials, which effectively meant that they had the means to buy themselves to the front of the vaccine queue, so to speak. So when, you know, these vaccines were approved, they're like, okay, we've already invested money in them. We've already got our, our contract sorted. And that's really paid dividends. And we're seeing now. Both countries, I'm speaking about Britain and the US here, suffered horribly during the pandemic, lots of cases, unfortunately, lots of death. But they both really managed to turn it around during the vaccination phase of this crisis because they've had ample access to doses. So that's great for us here and across the pond. But for the vast majority of the world, doses haven't been so easily accessible. And indeed, you know, some countries have scarcely begun their vaccination rollouts. So if you were to go to the White House or Downing Street about this, the first thing they would probably tell you is that we've invested huge sums in COVAX, which is the World Health Organization-backed international initiative, which is aimed at ensuring that every country that's participating gets their fair share of jabs. But the problem here is that there are only a finite number of doses available right now, especially in the short term. So you can have all the money in the world, and COVAX does have a lot of money, but what they can't do is just magically increase global production capacities. And this is why we were hearing just last week, uh, the World Health Organization Director General appealing to wealthy countries like Britain and the US to donate 10 million doses to COVAX so that dozens of countries that haven't even started administering doses can start within the first 100 days of the year. So yeah, I mean, effectively, what you're seeing is, is a lot of wealthy countries 
wanting to take care of themselves first. And, and, you know, if you're a country like the U.S. or Britain and you've kind of had a really terrible time this pandemic, perhaps you could understand why. But but it's a big problem for the rest of the world. And Biden's promise to Mexico of 2.5 million vaccines is apparently the largest single pledge of vaccine from one country to another, <laughs> which is a bit of a turnaround from, say, from what Biden refers to as the last guy. Yeah, I mean, it, it really just goes to show that, you know, America first, in some respect, really was here to stay. And I think with the US's vaccination strategy, it most certainly has been. I mean, just to put that into perspective, there's 2.5 million for Mexico, they tacked in 1.5 million for Canada, that's 4 million. Now, the US has produced more than 160 million doses, if I'm not mistaken, not a single dose has been exported out of there. And they've reserved, mm. I think, uh, more than 1 billion doses in terms of purchases. So, you know, this is a really like drop in the bucket. And mind you, these aren't even doses that the US is currently using because they've only just approved um, AstraZeneca for use in the States. And those are the those are AstraZeneca doses that they've agreed to loan. Also joining us, we have former Foreign Office diplomat and our World News Desk Chief, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? I'm all right. Good. Uh, we could talk about the shock revelations of Boris Johnson's affair with Jennifer O'Curry, which shocked everybody. Nobody could believe it. But we are a serious podcast. So what's going on in Mozambique, which you've been talking about this week? You've been referring to it as a modern Dunkirk. Yes. So it's a very underreported story. But basically, the northern province of Mozambique, which is a huge area, has been in the throes of a very serious insurgency for the last three years. And it kind of reached a particular um, dramatic moment over the weekend when a large group of people had to be evacuated by a sort of um, ad hoc flotilla of ships out of a city called Palma. And it was rather like Dunkirk. People were apparently on the beach being evacuated um, to safety further south. And this comes in a wider context of sort of ghastly massacres of, of civilians and and kind of widespread uncertainty. And as I say, almost no reporting of it in, in the Western media. Any hot take on Johnson R. Curry, which has put the entire country off sex for life at all? Uh, I really just don't want to think about it, actually. Quite, quite right, too. Um, our special guest today is the Scottish Cabinet Secretary for Finance and Scottish Parliament candidate for Kyle Lochaba and Badenoch. Welcome to the bunker, Kate Forbes. Thank you so much. And you're in Dingwall at the moment. That's right. Yes. How are things? North. Um, things are going very well. Uh-huh. Our election uh, campaign started in earnest about uh, three days ago because mm-hmm. the Scottish Parliament went into recess. And of course, campaigning this year looks very different from normal years. And as somebody who represents a huge rural area of Scotland, which stretches from east coast to west coast, I'd normally be out and about in the small villages knocking doors and instead managing the campaign from the, the comfort of my own living room. Well, you can at least, if, you know, you're in the open air, you can at least shout rather than having to go through letter boxes. You know, there is the open space there. That's right. Well, you, you you forget that the open space up here is very vast. Very open, yes. <laughs> Tell us about Kyle Lockharbour and Badenoch for listeners who haven't seen the outside of their back bedroom since last March. Where, where should we go when we can go? Oh, where wouldn't you go? This is a sort of tourist hotspot um, in in the UK, I would argue. Um, You've got the beautiful Isle of Skye, which is well known. And then you've got the outdoor capital of the UK, Fort William, um, as well as coming over to the East Coast where I live, where you get some of the the best wildlife, uh, sea life in terms of dolphins, um, porpoises, seals. So it's an area of the country that's very rich in in natural resources. And certainly it's our wind and our rain that's powering um, everybody else's energy. 
Um, there's going to be loads to talk about today, not least the arrival of the Alba Party, which we can talk about in a minute. But this election has been described as make or break for a, a second independence referendum. And the SNP is, according to the latest figures, it's kind of on course with the largest group in Holyrood, but possibly without an overall majority. What happens to that push for a second referendum if you don't get that majority? Well, bear in mind that the Scottish Parliament was always established to prevent outright majorities because of the Dehaunt system. So it's an alternative member system. And when there was an outright majority in 2011, it shocked most people because of the way that the, the top-up system favours smaller parties. So at the moment, we are obviously campaigning on the basis that people should use both of their votes to vote for the SNP mm-hmm. if they do want another independence uh, referendum. But you're right in saying that this is the most crucial parliamentary election ever. You know, we've got a, a first minister that is far and away the best first minister, the best leader on these islands. Polls regularly uh, prove that point. And this election is about the right to decide who leads our recovery. We've come through the most tumultuous year and economic recovery is essential. And we need somebody that we can trust. Somebody will put Scotland's interests first. And what we don't want to do is leave those powers in the hands of a government that feels ever more distant. Kate, it has been a tumultuous few weeks in Scottish politics, probably the most, the SNP's most torrid month in a, in a decade with the, the salmon sturgeon feud. Nicola Sturgeon was found not to have broken the ministerial code, but the kind of the details are pretty ugly. And now salmon has launched the Alba party and two SNP MPs have defected to it. How much damage has that public feud, feud done to nationalism and, and to the SNP in particular, do you think? Well, I think firstly, our movement is much bigger than any party and it's much bigger than any leader. It has existed for several uh, decades and it will continue into the future. um, And I hope will continue with uh, an independent Scotland being secured. But obviously, when it comes to support for independence, there are people in the Green Party that support independence that may disagree with the SNP on uh, elements of our, our, our policy. And I think the job in this election is for all parties to put forward a manifesto which, with policies that voters can weigh up. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that the alternative member system does mean that uh, smaller parties have an opportunity to try and secure uh, MSPs on the list system. But it's very, very difficult. You have to get quite a considerable percentage in order to do that. And back in 2016, we saw something very similar to what is being tried just now in terms of uh, smaller parties encouraging voters to use their second vote for some of these smaller parties and none of them were able to get seats. So our message in Scotland is that there's now I think about seven smaller pro-independence parties all vying for support on the list. That will just divide the pro-independence vote and so of course my message would be to encourage people to vote for the SNP. No, within that, I mean, like I said, there have been some, you know, fairly kind of uh, indecorous scenes lately. Everything from the long list of problems with the, uh, the the salmon inquiry, the court of session ruling that the government have behaved in a manner unlawful, procedurally unfair, and tainted by apparent bias. Obviously, Alex Salmon won his case, but the kind of the rancor there was was, was pretty palpable. How can the SNP deal with this? Because there are even sort of strongly nationalist voices like the Wings of a Scotland blog that a lot of people will be familiar with. They've become strongly critical of the SNP throughout this this episode. What is the SNP going to do to redress that? And yet the polls show two things. They show that Nicola Sturgeon is the most trusted leader on these islands. And they show that the SNP is on track 
to secure the biggest uh, vote share. So, you know, with, with the Conservatives in second place, quite a distant second place. I speak to you as somebody who's a local constituency member. I represent mm-hmm. people. I can tell you the number of emails I've received about this whole situation could be counted on one hand. People want to talk about business support. People want to talk about the fears they have for their future. People want to talk about how they can visit their loved one and care loved ones in care homes. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, whilst the the press and the political bubble is consumed with talk about this and I understand why and Mm. don't misunderstand me these are important issues when I speak to voters they want to know what we're going to do about economic recovery we they want to know when they can get out of lockdown they want to know how we're managing um uh, you know policies uh, about rebuilding this country so don't get me wrong it's an important issue but I Mm. think that the political bubble is consumed with it in a way that your average voter is not. I can imagine that, that that's true, but also it's it's kind of not either or, is it? You can't those those issues that you have talked about, economic recovery, opening the country up, enabling people to visit their loved ones, can be addressed at the same time as as addressing the trust with the um, the SNP kind of inner circle after what we've seen over the past few weeks. So as well as dealing with the you know the economic recovery of the country, how can the SNP deal with you know the way uh, almost the, the inner workings and and that sort of you know st- that broken relationship between Salmond and, and Sturgeon. You know, is that something that you can address throughout through the election campaign? What can you do to make feel, people feel that that has been dealt with? Well, you could pose that question, and I, I promise I'm not trying to escape answering it. Mm-hmm. But you could pose that question to the 300 new SNP members that just joined in my constituency alone in the last mm-hmm. few weeks. And, and and again, I come back to this point. Now, you've said already that the Hamilton report and James Hamilton is, of course, a a very respected uh, man, he comprehensively and completely cleared the First Minister of Mm -hmm. the code. She has given eight hours worth of evidence by which she stands. As somebody who is in the Scottish government, who is a local uh, representative and who is heavily involved with all my branches, I can assure you that what everybody is blowing up as some massive feud is actually not having an impact on the grassroots. It's not having an impact on ground zero. And what, you know, going into this election, of course, I am looking at how I uh, campaign within my own seat, how I represent the SNP. I'm, I'm mindful of these bigger questions and the bigger issues that are at stake. But again, I come back to this point that the SNP is on track to win the biggest share of seats the Conservatives are a distant second. We have had too many polls to count, which show a consistent and sustained support, majority support for independence over the last uh, few months. And that's whilst all of this and all of these issues, which are deeply unpleasant, um, have been unfolding. Uh, and, I, and again, I think there is a disconnect between what uh, we are all consumed with in the political bubble and what your average voter on the street actually cares about. A lot of sort of left or centre people in England, uh, our reaction is often to say, well, you know, we don't blame Scottish people for wanting to leave the UK after Brexit. Um, you know, it's kind of, they voted to remain part of, any, of a, a UK that was a member of the EU, and then the country voted by a sliver to leave the EU. 
why should Scotland feel kind of, you know, obliged to stick with that? But also for a lot of us, it would be heartbreaking for Scotland to leave because it would be, it would be the end of our country, which is the UK. And it would be, it would be a guarantor that England would be, you know, would remain governed by conservatives for the, for the foreseeable future. What do you say to, to, to people like me who are kind of centrist, wet lefties and very anti-Brexit? But we look at, we look at the idea of Scotland leaving and we feel incredibly depressed about it. Well, I do love your country as somebody who studied in your country and who studied in England and who lived and worked in England for a while. I have very good friends who still live in England. And my view is that in the event of independence, England would leave, uh, would, would lose perhaps an unruly neighbour and gain a close friend and ally. Because ultimately, for me, independence is quite a simple concept. It's about the people having power as close to home as possible. And over 21 years of devolution, I think, you know, you you look at, take the the economic stats, we've heard a lot about levelling up in the last uh, few years. I think there's a broad acceptance that our economy is unequal, that power sharing is unequal. That's not just between London and Scotland, that's actually within uh, England as well. So I think there's a fundamental question at stake here about the way in which power and uh, uh, economic opportunity or economic assets are shared across these islands. Uh, And my view is that you can have very soft borders and engage very closely, but still have full control over your own future and over your own destiny. And ultimately, devolution does not work because it's only partial power. It means that we've only got partial responsibility over uh, income tax, for example, or we can make decisions about planning but can't make decisions about energy policy when we're trying to meet our renewable targets. So that's where I think coming through COVID, through a hugely difficult time, people sometimes ask, well, why are you talking about independence when economic recovery is at stake? And I don't believe you can have one or one or over the other in Scotland that for economic recovery, we need the full powers of independence because we know at the hands of the Conservatives in London what economic recovery looked like post 2010. And it was balancing the books on the backs of the most vulnerable. And people in Scotland have continually rejected that at the ballot box. So why should we be lumbered with that for the next 10 years? Kate, something that you mentioned there, I think is... Uh goes to the heart of one of the questions around Scottish independence. You you talked about very soft borders. And of course, a major motivating factor for for an independent Scotland would be the opportunity to rejoin the EU and certainly to enter the single market. But if we look at all the problems that currently exist between Britain and Ireland, and I'm talking about the whole island there, the border in the Irish Sea, the questions around the Northern Ireland Protocol, isn't it rather fanciful to think that it would be possible to find an easy way for Scotland to rejoin the EU and its single market and also not have a hard border at Hadrian's Wall? My answer would be no for two reasons, but I do want to accept that the premise of your point, which is that the rest of the UK having left the EU makes these uh, questions more difficult to answer because you know Scotland didn't choose to leave. The fact that they're that we have still been dragged out, has posed constitutional and economic questions that need to be wrestled with. But my my two answers to that are that, first of all, we do know that there have been differentiated solutions. So you talked about Ireland. We know that Northern Ireland has a slightly differentiated solution. 
where they're able to access lines of uh, communication or, or access uh, between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland and then Northern Ireland um, and the EU is softer than it is for Scotland. Um, and yet we have been lumbered in with the hard Brexit and the consequences of that um, through no fault of our own. So, you know, our approach is to want to have soft borders, to have soft borders with the rest of the EU and also with the rest of the UK. I represent two coastlines. I've got fishermen on both coastlines that can tell me about seafood rotting uh, as it tries to make its way to European customers. We've seen some of the biggest uh, fish markets, fish producers markets in places like um, Peterhead, empty because of decisions that have been taken and imposed on the people of Scotland that we did not vote for. And that is the essence of democracy. So I don't in any way dismiss the importance of your question and the importance of navigating these issues. But I do think it's inherently unfair that the people of my constituency who have livelihoods at stake right now, who have built their whole businesses on exports to European markets, should face the consequences of a decision taken by a government that they didn't vote for. Well, of course, there are plenty of people in England who, who would echo that view. If I was going to move on, I was interested to um, ask you about something that Ian Blackford had said, obviously SNP leader in Westminster, saying that a second referendum would be in the second half of the next parliament. Well, what's his thinking there? Well, you'd need to ask Ian Blackford about his thinking, but I can share with <laughs> my thinking, um, which is that at this election, I do think the people of Scotland are facing a fundamental question about having another chance to choose their future. Now, that for me is more important than process. So your question is about when, essentially. And I think you know Nicola Sturgeon has been consistent in saying that when the crisis is over, we will uh, give the people of Scotland that chance to choose. Now, the crisis in COVID has taken all manner of twists and turns since we were first put into lockdown at last March. So I think it's very difficult to put timescales and put dates on that commitment. But our commitment is, if re-elected, we will uh, give the people of Scotland a, a chance to choose their future when the bulk of the crisis is over. Kate, you were the first woman to be appointed Cabinet Secretary for Finance and the first to deliver the Scottish budget um, and have worked on the SNP campaigns to address the gender pay gap. So if independence were to happen, you'd be organizing the finances. And so I guess which kind of brings me to the question that I know I certainly have heard a lot in terms of my own coverage of this, but does Scotland have the economic power to go it alone? The LSE and the City University of Hong Kong said that Scotland's economy would shrink by at least 11 billion a year if it became independent, two to three times the impact of Brexit. And the UK is Scotland's largest and most important trading partner, um, accounting for 61% of its exports and 67% of its imports. So yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, what's your economic case for Scotland's independence? Well, rather than me arguing, I would point you to some examples. If you look at the majority of small advanced economies that share a lot of characteristics with Scotland, you will see that they have regularly outperformed um, the UK economy over the last 10 years. And we as a country have um, a huge wealth of natural resources. We've got uh, renowned industries, whether it's uh, food and drink um, or otherwise. Um, and 
like any other small advanced economy, we would use our uh, the strengths of our economy, build on that, and essentially we would be able to tailor our uh, economic policies to doing that. If I give you one, in fact, I'll give you two examples of where we are hindered right now from doing that. Just last week, um, we celebrated the fact that 97% of Scotland's electricity had been powered by renewables, uh, which is great. And we've got some really ambitious uh, targets when it comes to climate change. But the grid energy policy is reserved. So all we have control over really is planning. We can have some control over uh, financial support. But here we've got an ambition and we've seen the UK government, particularly over the last uh, few years, take energy decisions that directly undermine our efforts to move to transition to renewable energy. Um, I take food and drink because we've already talked about it, our renowned food and drink, whether it's seafood or whiskey. Um, I can tell you that most of those businesses are telling me right now that it is nigh on impossible to get through the levels of bureaucracy right now at the border to get to European customers. And our seafood does rely on European customers. So there's just two industries which are key economic drivers for Scotland, uh, where we've seen significant increases over the last uh, few years. And yet the policies that are most harming them are reserved to the UK government. And so I think there's no inherent disadvantage in Scotland compared with some of these advanced economies, bar one. And that is that they have full controls and we do not. I wanted to ask you, uh, before, before we move on, as someone who's going to be in charge of finance, should independence happen, what happens to sterling? This was a big debate in 2014. Scotland was assured that you'd carry on using sterling. Is that still the case? Would you join the euro? Would you use what uh, our producer Elna describes as, as the pound sturgeon as your uh, unit of currency? <laughs> I hadn't heard of that one. Yeah, so we, we, I mean, we, we looked at this issue comprehensively in a document called the Sustainable Growth Commission that was published just a couple of years ago. And it, that makes the case, which was then accepted by the SNP, that the uh, currency the day before independence is the same currency the day after independence, which is sterling. And then from then on, we would focus very much on building our economy, securing um, a, a stable transition, building the institutions that we would need. So there would be a period of transition. And at a point when um, several tests had been ma- met, um, we would then move to our own currency. But ultimately, in the first few days after independence, first few years after independence, what is most important is market stability and ensuring that we can build uh, those uh, institutions. So you're not looking at going into the euro as fast as possible? Nope. Okay. Um, just before we move on, if the, if the SNP wins another term and uh, a working majority, uh, if not an, a, a complete majority, do you think you'll have to govern differently from the way you have in the past term that, that, that has produced that salmon sturgeon kind of you know public ugliness? Are there lessons to be learned for the way you govern? I think there are lessons to be learned for all politicians from the last few uh, months. Because I know you keep calling it a feud. I don't see it as a feud. I see Mm. it as allegations being made, accusations being made that have been investigated, the government holding their hands up and saying we got parts of this wrong and we need to learn lessons. But at the same time, we've seen a parliament that's almost been consumed by partisanship in the investigation. So there's a lot of questions about how to strengthen the powers of Holyrood and to hold executives to account, but also lessons for government to be learned. Um, And I think 
You know, I said earlier that most voters are getting in touch with me about policy and not about this issue. If they do get in touch with me about this issue, it's to say, grow up and, you know, govern well. But we'd rather see our politicians working together at a time of crisis than working against one another. And if I could just do one last plug in the Mm -hmm. middle, of all of the noise of the last uh, few months, I had to get cross-party support to get my budget passed. And nearly every year, the budget is a big focus of of political rivalry and and, and warfare. I managed to get two other parties to support my budget and get it passed. One was the Lib Dems, who you'll know disagree with us fundamentally on the Constitution. One was the Green Party, who don't but do disagree with other ideology. Um, And we managed to get cross-party support. And that kind of thing doesn't get picked up, perhaps, in the public domain, but it does show politicians working together on issues that really matter. Bipartisanship, it'll never catch on. Now, providing the UK does stay together, it's going to need to defend itself. And the government has just launched its defence review, in which Boris Johnson confirmed a cut in troops of 10,000 people, breaking his 2019 manifesto pledge not to reduce the number of military personnel. The government has promised to reorientate towards cyber war and new threats. But in a charmingly retro piece of policymaking, it wants to put an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea and increase our Trident nuclear warheads from 180 to 260 at a cost of £10 billion. Arthur, defence desk. What's happening here? Are we actually winding down our conventional military? And does this kind of is there a tension between the popular conception of a military and 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 what modern warfare requires in terms of drones and robots and cyber war and so on? Well, I think there's a bit of that. The government is placing a bit of a wager on war changing fundamentally in the coming years, and they're hoping that they'll be a, ahead of the curve. The other thing to note, that although they are cutting the size of the army, the army is currently unable to recruit to the number it's supposed to. So actually, we're quite close to the lower number of 72 anyway, simply because we haven't been managed. Uh, we haven't managed to, to, to get, get the numbers in. You know, army recruitment is always a challenge. So, you know, it's it's a mixture of lots of different things. I think ultimately, as ever, Britain is trying to be all things to all people. We want to be a naval power in the South China Sea. We want to be a cutting edge new military power with drones. We want to have a big nuclear arsenal. And and as ever, we, we sort of juggle all these different balls. The reviewers identified Russia and China, particularly its economic power, as significant threats. What use is an increased Trident arsenal against things like these? Uh, I've no idea. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to find any kind of really serious defence thinker who is particularly impressed by the Trident policy, the decision to get more nukes. You could make this argument that there are certain types of nuclear exchange in which a first strike wouldn't be able to disable the opponent, in which case you need a greater capacity. But we're talking about such an extraordinary doomsday scenario that it's very hard to understand what the purpose is. So why are they doing this? Uh, well, some people have suggested it's it's a way for, you know, m- men like to have big missiles because it makes up for the size of something else. I don't know. Economy, probably, is what you're thinking, isn't it? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to come up with a really serious argument. I think it is it is a way for people for whom global Britain is a sort of expression of virility and seriousness to project that sort of global nature of, of our country. But 
But genuinely, if you if you look at what very serious experts on nuclear power are saying, it's hard to find people who think that this is a really sensible policy. Uh, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said we shouldn't be playing top trumps with the numbers. We shouldn't be concentrating on the figures. Is he right? Is I mean, is it is it possible to have an effective modern military for a medium-sized state like Britain without that at-strength military you just mentioned? Well, it might be. And, and it is a gamble. You see, what's happened is that the, the army was involved in an exercise in, in uh, California, which involved sort of experimenting with this kind of new technique of using a lot of drones and concentrating small numbers of highly trained troops. And it went very well. And, and what, what the government has seemed to have decided to do is to kind of put its money on this particular horse which has run well in a couple of races. But the ultimately, the problem we have is that if a situation analogous to what had happened in Afghanistan arises at some time in the near future, we will find it very hard to put a kind of serious, um, you know, brigade-sized force onto the ground. And so I think, ultimately, you've got all these different tensions. And the Ministry of Defence doesn't really have the ability any more than anyone else to predict whether or not, for example, we might want to deploy serious numbers of troops to the Sahel region in Africa, which is, you know, going through this sort of deterioration in its security. Or will there be some crisis in the Baltic region with Russia? You know, these are all things that could happen and we just don't know. Kate, the Royal Navy nuclear base on the Clyde is Scotland's second largest site employer, single site employer. Where is the SNP on Trident and Fastlane? Yes, we. I mean, we're we're pretty uh, clear that we oppose uh, Trident renewal. Obviously, the the weapons that you talk about have been based in the Clyde for over half a century, and in that time, there's been quite consistent opposition from people in Scotland, from civil society, from most of Scotland's elected politicians, and. I think most polling, again, shows that a majority of people would oppose the renewal of of Trident. So I don't know if that's a short answer to your question, um, but there is a a general opposition to renewal of of Trident, particularly when you look at the total cost of the next generation of Trident, which I think uh, the Commons Affairs, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee uh, calculated as being at least £179 billion over its lifetime. And I can certainly think of quite a number of ways that, that Scotland could use that funding more intelligently. The Scottish government's response to the Defence Review was entitled Scotland, a good global citizen. Uh, and it's very much about opposition to use of, uh, of and uh, possession of nuclear weapons. What, what would an independent Scotland's defence posture look like? Would you join NATO? Yep. So our our position in terms of Trident is that we do need to make sure that we're responding to um, the threats that are out there. But we do want to do this in in a completely different way. Um, so we obviously believe in having a, a strong uh, defence force, but we don't think that that should be done um, or doesn't need to be done um, through Trident. And again, I know I talked about it in terms of mm. economic uh, impact, but there are ways in which we can be a good global citizen without investing in nuclear weapons. Arthur, the, the integrated review. I mean, what, what does it? What does this show us about how little known defence and security policy is in in the wider world, and how the Ministry of Defence really works? Because, you know, you've you've spoken to me uh, outside of the podcast about the huge involvement of private contractors and private provision in you know both in in supply and in training. Numerous investigations have shown how billions in you know foreign aid for developing countries for instance is actually spent 
back here in the UK and on the West on consultants and defence stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's the, in terms of the privatisation of the defence angle, it's just quite a surprise. You know, people people are surprised to learn that fighter jet training is done by private companies and they're surprised to learn that maintaining nuclear submarines is done by private companies and all manner of other things. Uh, and I think that's just a, a feature of the kind of post-Thatcher sort of approach of, of pushing as many things as possible sort of off the government balance sheet. In terms of the, the stuff about the aid, I mean, I think that's a slightly more nuanced picture because the challenge with foreign aid is that you can do various things. You can give aid in huge grants to big international organisations and then people complain that those organisations aren't transparent or you can give it in big grants to poor countries and then people complain that those countries are corrupt or you can spend it on consultants who you know to be uh, quite effective but then people complain that those consultants are are here in the UK and you know you should be spending the money somewhere else so I I think it's always hard always hard to to sort of avoid criticism in, in that space. Yasmin, Do- Donald Trump was pretty keen on military activity in the private sphere. He sort of brought Blackwater's Eric Prince very much into the into the tent, accepted campaign funds uh, from Blackwater, promoted Eric Prince's sister to education secretary, granted him a presidential pardon before leaving office. How kind of integrated is that sort of private disp- defence establishment into the American governmental machine? I mean, kind of. Going off of Arthur's point, I don't, you know, I think he's right to the extent that I don't know how much people kind of know, because it certainly kind of isn't an area of my expertise. So I think kind of having read up on it a little bit, it is kind of, you know, I think he was right to the extent that, you know, for a lot of people, it may just be shocking to know that, you know, we we can have like private military, like militaries for hire effectively. But I I think I, I do recall that when Trump's pardon came about, that was pretty big deal in the sense that, um, you know, the optics of that decision. I mean, effectively, I think as as General David Petraeus had put it, you know, telling the world that Americans abroad can commit the most heinous crimes with impunity. Um, and, you know, this isn't just like, you know, the army, which I think, you know, if, if you're representing a country, perhaps there's a bit of a, you know, obviously heinous things happen in, in wars um, and, and armies can, can be at the helm of that. But you at least feel like, there's a sense of, you know, the country kind of has to take responsibility for that. Whereas in this instance, you had one of the most egregious, you know, events in Iraq happen, you know, at the hands of of a military for hire, which is just, you know, um, yeah, I just think the optics of that was terrible. And I think there's certainly been calls for um, Biden to reverse. I don't actually know if, if that's been considered or if that's something he's going to do, but um, it doesn't look good now. Arthur, finally, uh, if the Wheel of Fortune were to turn you into Britain's defence czar, what would you be looking to do? My answer will show why it won't happen, because I think we should join the European army and get rid of our nukes. But anyway, you know. So remain. <laughs> Such a Romaniac. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what's so wrong with the European army. They'd, they'd be turned out so well. Style yeah, outfits. Exactly. Now, are you feeling fungible or not? You might not have heard of non-fungible tokens, but from $69 million artworks to $2.9 million tweets, the market for things which do not physically exist is mushrooming. So how do non-fungible tokens work and will they ever become common currency? Hi there, I'm James Ball. I'm a tech journalist and author of The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us. So an NFT is basically a bit of a variation of something like 
Bitcoin or Ethereum or all of these cryptocurrencies. Bitcoins work like a pound coin. If you've got a pound, you've got a pound. You don't really care which pound coin it is. NFTs are for stuff where it's completely different. Each one is like a kind of unique certificate. And what those are being used for is to correspond to digital art. In practice, what they're trying to do is make digital originals. There might be a million copies of the Tell Cersei, I want her to know it was me, GIF. But if one of them's got an NFT, in theory, that means that's the original, that's the special one. Absolutely anything can be sold as an NFT. The sort of tricky thing with them is you're really only buying the NFT itself or trading the NFT itself. So people say things like Jack Dorsey sold the first ever tweet that he did for $2.9 million as an NFT. What you actually own is this little bit of code on a blockchain that sort of points to the URL of that tweet. It doesn't let you into Jack's Twitter account. It doesn't give you the legal copyright to it unless someone signs a side deal doing it. And crucially, there's absolutely nothing to stop Jack going and deleting that tweet. To an extent, you can make absolutely anything in NFT, but obviously it's got the most sort of use for art. So a lot of things that work on blockchain, like Bitcoin, are incredibly environmentally damaging by design. Blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum work on an idea called proof of work. And that means your computer or a computer has to show it's done loads and loads and loads of problem solving. Now, that makes it sound useful. You should think of it more as loads of Sudokus or loads of crosswords. There's no benefit to these problem solving. Every now and then, those are rewarded by some Bitcoins. The one issue with this is that traditional art is kind of very silly too. One picture is different from the millions of other identical ones if it can somehow be the original, even if they were all printed in the same way. Why is it intrinsically more ridiculous if one GIF or one JPEG is the original just because all the others are identical? You could see this actually giving a bit more credibility to digital art. It's just we've got to hope that the quality of that digital art really improves a bit more so that it's not all just weird 3D animated graphics designed to appeal to teenage boys. Because if that's the aesthetic for the next decade, I think we'll all end up looking back quite fondly on being locked up at home. From one currency to another, godfather of modern computing Alan Turing is on the new £50 note. And as the entire internet noted, it means we can now commemorate a man who was never accepted by society by not accepting him in pubs, cafes and taxis either. <laughs> Have you got change for an Alan? The new note is plastic and the BBC said old paper £50 notes will still be accepted in shops for some time. I want to know where these shops are that will accept £50 notes because I've never encountered one in my life. This is for once a happy story, but what do we make of the symbolism of banknotes and what is going to happen when the Queen dies and she, she can't be on them anymore? Arthur, our current banknotes are Churchill, Jane Austen, J.M.W. Turner, Adam Smith and now Alan Turing. Um, it's a lot of white guys. Do we need a bit more diversity on our banknotes? Well, it, it sounds like we do. <laughs> I mean, Turing is not the first gay person on the note. That was Ch uh, William Shakespeare, of course, who was retired in 1993. Emails to the usual address. Do you think Do you think that um, we choose the right people for the banknotes, Arthur? Are we kind of showing the right side of Britain? Well, I, I've no idea how this process goes. I know that in, in America, 
there was controversy, wasn't there? Because Trump, I think, blocked the uh, idea to have um, Harriet Taubman on a yes. on a US d- note. But I, yeah, I mean, who who chooses these things? I guess it's the Bank of England, is it? Well, it, it, it's Bank of England, with, and it goes out to popular consultancy so that we, that, so that people are broadly oh. okay with it, which I think has brought us uh, touring, which is good because it shows that you know attitudes are changing and people are more open, uh, you know, to, 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 to different ways of doing these things. But that that sort of kind of the potency. It, I mean, it's just a face on a banknote. Why should we consider it to be so potent and so important? I suppose that you know banknotes are these slightly sort of mythical objects, aren't they? You know that they, they 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 by definition have a have a certain power. And, mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, that, that face is perhaps more important than any other. Mm. Kate, as, as anyone who's tried to spend one in uh, an English shop knows, Scottish money is entirely a world of its own. Issued by three banks, Clydesdale Bank of Scotland and Royal Bank of Scotland. As finance secretary, you will be in charge of, of this. Who's going to go on the money in uh, independent Scotland when you bring in your new currency that you mentioned earlier? Great question. I think a lot more women would be my starting point. And just to your, your earlier question about why she would care about this, I think it's a little bit like some of the debates around why there aren't more uh, women commemorated uh, in statues. I can take Scotland as an example where I think that the argument used to be that there was uh, more statues of dogs perhaps in Edinburgh than there were of uh, women, but I think that may have changed. But it's just it's an indication, isn't it, of the, the shared popular memory of historical women, and mm. I think our banknotes are another way uh, that we see that. I don't very, I don't rarely use banknotes either, so I don't actually spend much time looking at them. But I think Scotland certainly has a vast swathe of historical characters that we could put on our banknotes. Well, the Bank of Scotland primarily uses bridges. The RBS has otters and squirrels and castles, which I think is a really good mix. Clydesdale is the one that has people at the moment. Robert Burns, Robert the Bruce, Charles Rennie Mackintosh. As you say, there's a huge reservoir of famous Scots in there. I mean, uh, do you have any personal preferences? Donald Dewar, Bill Shankly, Ivor Cutler? Any personal favourite Scots? Oh, uh, you could go even further back than that, Mm -hmm. um, I think, in terms of uh, famous uh, Scots and famous Highlanders, um, a lot of uh, inventors and entrepreneurs. And now that you put me on the spot, I probably won't be able to name one of them. Well, there is a rule, isn't there, that that runs around the world, which is you can't be on a banknote until you've died. So that sort of narrows it down a little bit. You could have Stuart Adamson from Big Country. Much in mind, I don't know. But, you know, with it having to sort of represent the best of of the national character. That's right. And we also um, have a lot of famous dead Scots as well. Yes. So um, at least we could, uh, you know, pick from some of them. Well, there is the argument that Bob Marley is fundamentally Scottish. So I don't know if you <laughs> want to go that far. Yasmin, British banknotes are so different from the US. I mean, we're always changing. ours. got loads of different colours. Yours are all green. They're all the same size. These are the reasons I keep paying with, uh, you know, $10 <laughs> bill when I think it's a $1 bill and vice versa. I mean, Arthur just mentioned that the Harriet Tubman episode. They are vehicles for messages, aren't they? I mean, Harriet Tubman, was. it's going to come in in 2028. Mm. First American, African-American face on a banknote. Delayed by Stephen Mnuchin. What happened there? Yeah, so they, yeah, it, it was an initiative that came in during the Obama administration and then it kind of lapsed under Trump. But it's definitely something that's going to be accelerated um, under Biden, as I understand it. I think um, Jen Psaki, his, um, his press secretary, had said that they're taking the steps to resume it and that, you know, it's important that our money reflect the history and diversity of our country, which I think kind of relates to the point Kate made, which is, is right, that, you know, kind of much like statues, currency is kind of a good way to sort of signal you know, who you want to commemorate in the public square, so to speak, or in this case, in your wallets, 
you know, if mm. you use them, which as we've established, I, I don't know who uses cash anymore. That the US is is I found to be pretty behind when it comes to um sort of payment forms. Like I contactless may be a thing there, but when I lived when I last lived in the States in twenty seventeen, it didn't exist. So mm. much to my surprise when I came here. But um but, but yeah, I'm not quite sure about the story there, but I, I think they are important. Um, the one thing that you did leave out, Andrew, is that U.S. money also has a very distinct smell. It really does. I hate <laughs> to say it. Don't take it personally, Asmi. It really stinks. It does. It really pongs. I, I think it's because of the cotton linen combination that you got. You know, it's not like U.K. money where you can dip it in a curry and it will be fine. Not because it's plastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you did it with American money, you One politician did that. A politician, I can't remember which one, but there's a British politician who dipped a, a note in a curry to prove that, you know, it, it wouldn't be harmed. Cause <laughs> but what about the curry? That's what I want to know. I have <laughs> to ask you, why, why does America hate coins so much? I mean, the, the, uh, the only Native American figure I could find in American currency is Sacagawea, who's on the $1 coin that everybody hates and nobody uses. They're just not very com- convenient. It's like, no offense to Sacagawea, but like, you know, they're just not, they're not really useful. Whereas, I mean, at least, I also don't, I mean, there's something, I feel like at least with the bills, it's kind of very prominent who's on them, whereas the coins, you kind of have to squint. But I think another point that, that I should have made too, is that like, I, I think it is important to have more diverse figures and, and certainly replacing someone like Andrew Jackson, who's a, a former president and a slave owner with an abolitionist mm. like Harriet Tubman, I think is hugely important, even just for the symbolism. Um, and, you know, mind you that, you know, before he became this popular figure on Broadway, most Americans, at least I'll speak for myself, at least only really knew who Alexander Hamilton was because he was on the $10 bill. Like obviously I went to school and then learned, but you know, for the most people, they may, they may not have known his contributions uh, until, uh, unless they, you know, see that he's on bills like, Oh yeah, you know, he's behind our, our financial system. So, um, but yeah, as for coins, I don't know. I w- I'm not going to make a case for them because I find them incredibly annoying. Yeah, you're the only people in the world who hate coins. Everybody else is like, why have they got bills for everything? It's such a pain. You've got to have a fat roll to pay for anything at all. Just have coins like the rest of the world. Arthur, to wrap this up, our question of the Queen is not going to be around forever. There will be a change of sovereign on the money and the stamps soon. Are we ready for the Prince Charles tenor or the Prince William tenor? Yeah, I think people might be readier for one than the other. I don't know. Mm. I mean... um it just goes to the whole question, doesn't it? The Queen has been such an iconic figure, whether even if you're not much of a monarchist, I'm not much of a monarchist. On the money, she she sort of looks like Britannia, really, doesn't she? And, mm. and I'm not sure that her son or grandson will quite carry that off in the same way. Yeah, she has a certain profile, doesn't she? There, there, there is only one solution, as I mentioned earlier, put Bowie on everything and then we'll all be happy. We've come to the end of this week's bunker, and as usual, we're going to ask the panel for their escape routes from politics. What are the TV, films, books, or miscellaneous that are taking their minds off politics? Kate Forbes, you're in campaign mode. Your mind shouldn't be coming off politics, but when it does, any time for telly, music, books? Oh, my escape this year has been going underwater. Heartily recommend it. It's the only place you can't look at your phone if you go there. <laughs> if you go sparkling in the frigid Atlantic Ocean, it, nobody can access you unless they come in with you. What, so you go actually scuba diving? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't go scuba diving, you know, humble snorkelling instead. Oh, right. Is this where you're seeing all these dolphins? Uh, yeah, they generally stay quite far away from me. But, um, yeah, I'm <laughs> admiring this, this sort of crabs a metre deep. Yeah, that's, they, can, they can tell that you're in campaign mode, you see. That's why they're giving <laughs> you a wide berth. Yasmin, how about you? What have you been reading, watching, listening to and so forth this week? Well, so after, I don't know if you all remember those Tom Cruise deep fakes that were kind of 
cir- circulating around the internet, um, I guess a few weeks ago, maybe even longer that, before that. But that inspired mm-hmm. me to get uh, Nina Schick's book on deep fakes in the infopocalypse. So I've been terrifying myself with that um, oh, right. as opposed yes. to paying attention to the news. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good read. I recommend checking it out. Yes, again, not really escaping politics, is it? More like running, screaming into the arms of politics. <laughs> I, I, I do what I can. I have to like tangentially get away from it. Fair enough. Arthur, how about you? Ordinarily, around this time of year, I would travel to uh, Kate's constituency, in fact, specifically oh. Fort William, because I love to go climbing. And this time of year, the best ice climbing in the world is on Ben Nevis. Um, obviously, that's not happening this year. So I've been consuming films of climbing <laughs> and, and there are loads of really good ones. Uh, and one I watched recently, a, a beautiful film, even if you have no interest in climbing mountains, I can recommend it. It's called Distilled. Mm. And it's about people climbing Scotland's mountains in winter. And it's, yeah, it's a fascinating, uh, beautiful, beautiful bit of film. Yes, another side to your uh, strange and adventurous world, Arthur, which we'll never come to the end of. Mine uh, is a book. It's the opposite of mountaineering. It's a book called Excavate, The Wonderful and Frightening World of the Fall. And it's a fantastic compendium of essays, ideas and memorabilia of the great band The Fall and the late Marky Smith. I thought I knew a lot about The Fall. It turns out I don't know very much about them at all. They are bottomless. They are fathomless. There's so much to know. Everything from what The Fall can teach you about architecture, poetry, the rise of the working class in the northwest of England, mysticism, it's incredible, um, and it's edited by Bob Stanley of the band Saint Etienne and Tessa Norton, who's a, an arts writer. And it's out now. It's it's just it, it's to me. It's like the Christmas annual uh, of the fall that I never got when I was a teenager. Heartily recommended. And that's the end of the show. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. So do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Thanks to Yasmin Sohan. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. And thanks to our special guest Kate Forbes. Thanks from Dingwall. Best of luck with the election. And uh, if you if you enjoyed the show, of course, please remember you can back the bunker on Patreon. Just say our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers get an honorary salute on the show. And here are some now. Thanks from me to Philip Marshall, Andrew Jacobs and Danny Smith. Hello and best wishes from me to Paul Evans Philippa Baker and Mike Cashman. And hello, a big thanks from me to John Latham, Paul and Patrick McCarthy. And finally, this episode is dedicated to the late Lou Baxter of the Sunday Times, the Mirror and City Press, without whom I would not be here today. Scottish Independence Special, this one's for you, Lewis. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Saran and Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>